Welcome to Broadway's Backbone with Brad Bradley, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of the ensemble, the chorus of dancers, singers, and actors that are the foundation of every Broadway musical. These often unsung gypsies are the hardest working people on the board and are, well, Broadway's Backbone. Welcome to episode 67. My very special guest is Joe DiPietro. Joe DiPietro is an acclaimed and accomplished playwright and musical theater author. He is a two-time Tony Award winner for Memphis on Broadway, which also received the 2010 Tony Award, Drama Desk Award, and Outer Critics Circle Award for Best Musical. He received a Tony nomination and Drama Desk Award for Broadway's Nice Work If You Can Get It. Other Broadway credits include All Shook Up, Living on Love, starring Renee Fleming, Off-Broadway, Ernest Shackleton Loves Me, Clever Little Lies, The Toxic Avenger, an Outer Critics Circle Award for Best Off-Broadway Musical, The Thing About Men, Outer Critics Circle Award, Best Off-Broadway Musical, the much-produced comedy Over the River and Through the Woods, and I Love You, You're Perfect, Now Change, the longest-running musical review in off-Broadway history, and recently revived at the George Street Playhouse. Some of his many regional theater credits include The Second Mrs. Wilson, Long Wharf Theater, and George Street Playhouse, Chasing the Song, La Jolla Playhouse, The Last Romance, The Old Globe. His kindness to paying it forward has been spread from the kids at the Theater Development Fund and all the way to this specific podcaster. He is currently working on two new pieces, including a Toulouse-Lautrec musical and a musical called Diana, about the Princess Diana. So I'm sitting here with Joe DiPietro. I'm very excited. I've been a fan of your work for a really long time. Thank you. Sometimes I love stuff that we'll talk about later that I didn't realize for years was actually you. So oh. it's interesting <laughs> to read your bio and be like, oh my god, I love that show. Yeah. I had no idea he did it. Let's just start at the beginning. Where are you from and how'd you get started? I am from Oradell, New Jersey, which is about 10 minutes off the George Washington Bridge. And when I was young, uh, my parents took us would take us to see a Broadway show a year. So this was in the 1970s. So I saw shows like Annie and Shenandoah and The Wiz uh, and all those things that I must have been like, you know, 12, 13, a sort of a young teenager. And the first show I ever saw was 1776. And I can still, the original with, um, I saw 1776 was the first <laughs> show I saw. And I still remember when the lights went up that the, where I was sitting when I saw the Continental Congress. And for whatever reason, I was like hooked. I was like, I don't know how, but I'm going to be part of this. Like, I still remember that moment. It was uh, sort of transformed for me, which is why I always encourage parents to, to expose their kids to as much culture as they can, because you never know. So uh, I grew up in New Jersey, and I just loved theater, and I started to write little plays, and I entered a play into a writing contest, which was called the Scholastic Writing Awards, which is a national contest that still exists by Scholastic Magazine, and it won this award, this one-act play for dramatic writing. I went to this big luncheon at the Algonquin Hotel, and sat next to all these literary people, and I suddenly felt like, oh, you know, maybe I can be a writer. So that's sort of how the bug was put into my head. I love that 1776 was mm -hmm. your first show, because many people say that's the best book of a musical of all time. I would probably agree with those people, yeah. It's, it's great. It, and I love that score. I think sometimes people say, oh, that score, you know, it's really about the book. Like, that score is just, the music is perfect for that story. The lyrics are great. So, yeah, it's a wonderfully well-constructed book. And, you know, what it did was it made people who were these sort of iconic American history figures made them human. And I'm just writing a show now about iconic figures, and I'm trying uh, to make them human uh, based on 1776. 
six. So yeah. Looking at your list of credits, mm-hmm. a lot of it looked like stuff I didn't know. It, it seems like you also do plays and do musicals. Yes. Me coming from the musical world, mm-hmm. except for your big Broadway uh, plays, I didn't realize you had other plays. Yes. Did you start off in plays and then turn into musicals, or did you always do both? You know, I when I was in my twenties, I, I worked in advertising. Mm-hmm. I wrote advertising copy and promotions for TV stations and things. So uh, I always just considered myself a writer. Mm-hmm. But I wrote two things uh, simultaneous. One was I Love You Perfect Now Change, which just started out as funny little sketches that we performed for my friends, and that just sort of took its life of its own. And then a producer saw it and said, this is a musical review, put music in it. And the only musical review I've ever seen was Amos Behave, and I was like, well, this isn't a musical. I don't know, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm. So she hooked me up with a, a composer named Jimmy Roberts who said, no, we can make this into a musical review. And so we spent a couple years. I really learned how to write music, and then once we would put music in these sketches, I also learned how music just opens things up for an audience in the theater, like how lyric and music work and, and, and what music does. So it was a great lesson. But I was also at the same time writing uh, my first play, which was called Over the River and Through the Woods, oh. which is about my grand, my Italian-American grandparents, very much a traditional, almost uh, of the day, Neil Simon-esque comedy. And they both sort of got produced at the same time, and they both ran for a while in New York and still both still get done all, all the time. So I love both plays and musicals, but as any writer quickly finds out, musicals are much more popular than plays. Yes. And you can make an actual living if you write musicals that are somewhat successful even. So I go back and forth, but I started focusing on musicals. Um, also because if you can write a book of a musical, I think that you're very valued in this business. So suddenly people start approaching me about writing new shows. So, But I love them both. But you know, there is something about when a musical works, it works better than just about any entertainment form, I think. Oh, no, I agree. Yeah. With I Love You, You're Perfect, Now Change, uh-huh. knowing that it started off as fun uh-huh. with your friends, yeah. did you have any idea? It had an extensive run in in, in New York. Did it, you even see that that was going to no, happen? No, no, no. It was like my first my first show ever in New York of any kind. That's a little basement, thing, like weekend things, right? Yeah. That's my first professional show that I wasn't producing for my friends, you know, and selling drinks to. So I remember when it was first opening, I said to myself, you know, if this runs for six months, it'll be a great thing because it'll get my next show that much easier to get produced. And at the time, which was in this was in the nineteen mid nineteen nineties, the off Broadway musical was still a viable thing. Everything changes all the time, but I think one of the sad states of this business is there's no longer an off Broadway financial model to support commercial off Broadway shows because I basically learned how to write from work writing I Love You Perfect Now Change. It was mm. a great way to learn how to write musicals because it's sketches and songs. So if a sketch or a song didn't work, we just threw it out and put in another one. There's no, there, there's a progression of from the first date through dating and marriage and, and divorce and things, but there's no real story to it. So it was easy, you know, it was just like write a sketch, wasn't funny, threw it out, wrote another one the next night. It was a great sort of, uh, who knew at the time, a way to learn. But I had no idea that show. That show ran for 12 years in New York. That still gets done. And that's like, you just can't, whatever it is, whatever whatever that show says, it's a reflection of its audience. People still do it all the time. We just did an updated version for the first time in a long time on it. So yeah, no, you, it's a, yeah, as anyone knows in this business, you never know what's gonna work and what's gonna be a hit and what isn't. You can only write and do what you feel speaks to you. Yeah. Yeah. I was fortunate because I got to see the original at the West Side Theater. Yeah. Uh But then I recently just saw the updated one, and I really liked the updated Uh stuff. My favorite thing about it was just, I talked to you for real quick, because I think it was like a final preview, and you said, I loved revisiting myself as a young writer. Yeah. 
And then we didn't really get to talk uh, about that. I was like, now that's like, I want, so now uh, I'm going to unpack yes, that. We can, yes. <laughs> well, you know, it's, that show was written, that was my first musical, uh, really my first sort of professional piece of writing. And it was a big hit, you know, and people laughed and had a great time at it. And, you know, you could just see it growing and it made, that show makes a lot of people happy. And I was young. I was in my early 30s. I had not pretty much a care in the world. You know, as I say, I had no tragedy in my life at that point. I was just a young, happy person. And there's a real youthful, wise-ass viewpoint in that show. And I think it's very helpful. Mm. So I've been asked to, like, update it over the years. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. It's, I, I don't know if I could capture and if... What I know now about life and writing, if I go in and try to insert that knowledge, it might ruin the show. It might, it's not what that show is. There's mm-hmm. a lightness to that show, which I think is part of its popularity, quite frankly. And there's a heart to it, too, that, that really works. And I was like, oh, God, I know these, these sketches and songs so well. <laughs> like, how do you re- really redo something that you've seen work over and over? But clearly, you know, life has changed in the last 20 years. We have changed as men and women, but... Certainly the technology has changed, Mm. the way we interface with people has changed, the way we date has changed. So I thought that that was worth looking at. But I really tried hard to capture who I was and I'm no longer that, it's 20 years later, I'm I'm no longer that person. So that, 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 that was the challenge of it. And we did, uh, we wrote a bunch of it. I think I got a little scared of it, but we put it up and it worked, I think, really well. We're going to make that version available for licensing, but I think at some point we're going to actually go and, and, and work even more on it because I finally saw that it could work. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think what a lot of uh, performers, mm-hmm. and myself included, you just get in there and it's all about right. you. You don't <laughs> yeah. realize that whatever this show is that you're doing started uh-huh. with the writer. Him and a couple ideas yeah. by himself or by herself. Yeah. It's a very solitary it thing. Is. How do you start with just a seed of something? Well, you know, whatever makes a writer, who knows, but you have to lo- want to spend a lot of time alone, which I actually enjoy. And I know some people who say, I'm going to write, but being alone so much drives them nuts. Mm. You know, I actually love it. I can go for a weekend at a house in Connecticut and go there and just lock myself in and, and work. And I'm, I can't be happier. So it's a little, it's a little as I say, I like, you have to spend a lots and lots of hours by yourself creating arguments in your head between fictional people. That's essentially what... What dramatist does. What also happens is by the time an actor in a rehearsal process, like you just talked about, meets the the page, I've generally spent at least two years working on and thinking about this show, at a minimum. So it's always thrilling and terrifying to hear words come out of an actor's mouth for the first time. Yes. Because as a writer yourself, you know, like when you write something, you you hear it a certain way. You know, the sentence "I love you," for instance. You write that, I love you, you think this character is saying that and they really mean it or they don't know they're hiding something. Well, there's a thousand ways to say I love you and you get in the mouth of a good actor and yeah. suddenly they always surprise you. And I love when actors surprise you and attack things and, and, and give meaning to things that I never thought. Theater is also such a collaborative art form. Mm. You know, if, I always tell people, if you want everything the way, the way you intended it, the, your words to just be interpreted by your audience, like write novels, write poetry, you know, that's direct from you to someone. But as a writer in theater, the actor is a conduit. So I love working with uh, good actors and I love, you know, and, and I have great respect for actors and I've worked with many, many great ones over the years. So I'm very, and, and, and I've seen actors, I'm not just talking even New York actors, like people all over the country and all over the world doing my work and being thoroughly impressed by the care they give to it mm-hmm. and the thought they give to it. You know, yes, and of course, every actor, every you know, we're all individuals. So when you 
when you read a show, you take it from the inside out. I yeah. mean, you know, you interpret it in, in different ways, and I love that. And that's why I love for theater, because I love actors and directors and designers interpreting my work in different ways each time I see it. That's great. It, I heard a quote once that said, the hardest part about writing is sitting yeah. down. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a problem doing that? Or it sounds like you're pretty... I'm pretty you know, like I procrastinate. I can procrastinate with the best of them. Yes. But I'm pretty disciplined about it. And I also, as I like to say, there's nothing like a deadline. Mm. And I'll oftentimes give myself fake deadlines. So I'll oh. say, the script I'm working on, no one's paying me for it. I want to get it done by two weeks from now. And I somehow convince my little mind that this is a true thing. And it's amazing what it does. And, you know, there's also... Uh, and I love actually quotes. I actually always, whenever I see writers' quotes... I always like cut them out and have mm. a whole list of them because I find them, you know, succinct and, and helpful and generally true. Yes. You know, you don't find inspiration oftentimes until you're actually sitting down doing the work. Like, and you don't oftentimes know what your whole story is until you're sitting down doing the work. I often give myself permission to write badly on something I just started, which means I'm going to write this thing and I have no idea how it is and I'm just going to dive in. It might be terrible. I might never see the light of day, but this is what I'm doing for the next three hours. And that's a big help because it takes the pressure off. And that's when I find, you know, the worst type of writing or any creative thing, I'm sure even as an actor, is like, I have to be great and this this thing has to be yes. great and it has to, it just locks you. I, I try to avoid that. But I play a lot of tricks myself to get myself to write. Having said that, in the midst of writing something that I'm enjoying, there's like, time just goes as quickly as ever and I just lose myself and there, there's nothing like it. I'm always curious about the writer's uh, relationship with the ensemble because uh-huh. oftentimes in the creation on the page it says crowd enters <laughs> and, uh, and then you get in there and you know yeah. you're integral to the story but your interaction with the writer himself it's not as, as daily right. so how does that how do you say you create because in your head you obviously know what this crowd that's entering is but sometimes you don't get to develop that until you have yeah a crowd. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, ensembles are so vital to musical theater, obviously. And you can have a great career as an ensemble member. Some people start in the ensemble. Some people go on to featured parts. Some people go on to directing, writing, you know, all, or, all, all sorts of things. Having a great ensemble is so important. But I try to view, every time I do a, a show now that's going to have an ensemble, I try to say, okay, who is this ensemble? And how are they telling our story? And a specific example, um, which is sort of in the midst of my mind now, so I have a new show uh, called Diana, which is based on Princess Diana. Mm. It's not based on, it's about her, about the marriage to Charles uh, with Camilla in the, as the third person in that marriage. So there are, four char- there are four characters, which are Diana, Charles, Camilla, and the Queen. And the ensemble, I call them the Citizens of England. Because the fascination that the British public had, and by really the worldwide public, yeah. it takes place in, in Britain, the show, obviously. So the fascination that the British citizens had, I wanted them to be a character. And they play the ensemble who sort of takes us into the story and comments on them. They play the people who, in the streets who, when Diana walks there, they just want to devour her mm. because they're so enamored with her and they love her so much. They play the uh, AIDS patients in hospitals. So when uh, Diana, very famously, during the height of the AIDS crisis, went to hospitals where even doctors didn't want to touch AIDS patients, and she famously, you know, held their hands and touched them, held AIDS babies. I mean, really amazing, amazing things. So these are are all characters in the show around the orbit of these four main characters. But I'm very specific in 
figuring out who they are. And, and there's some roles like, for instance, I know we're going to want a couple of the ACE patients to be thin young men because that's who they were then. Mm, so yes. uh, it's important to have that look for some. We need uh, someone to play her father, so he needs to be a little older. We need uh, some doctors who I know are, are going to be women. So, you know, so we're ca- and, and we need to cast the diversity of England, of what that population looks like. So it looks like real people in this thing. I, I think it's easy probably for ensemble members to say, well, they just sort of picked me because I could sing and dance. At least in my experience with my shows, I've always picked people who are super talented and, and clearly at the top of their game to, and then really cast them as a complete little town almost. Yeah. You know, I, always, I always think that that ensemble makes up the town of the play. Even if it, the, even if the town, the town just as a metaphor, even the towns are all over the place. So right. To me, it's important to have people who really have. You really feel like you're in a real place, and the ensemble gives you that. Those are the best ensembles to be part of because you feel of like course. you feel like you're contributing yeah. as well. During uh, the rehearsal for Memphis, Chris Ashley had great, just a fantastic ensemble. I mean, really, just people have gone on to so many things uh, since then. He had all of them one day write their backstories. And it was as a writer, it was fascinating because I came in and everyone gave their character a name and everyone gave their character a backstory. And as a writer, I'm like, because you know, I wrote the, the, eight, the eight <laughs> yeah. main characters and I knew this ensemble and they had a rep. They were, you know, there was mostly African American. There was some white people. They had, you know, they they, they were in this uh, very volatile uh, racial mix in, in the uh, 1950s in Memphis, Tennessee. But people came in with their backstories and about what their lives were and how their lives impacted the lead characters of the show and it was like I was riveted because I had spent you know David Bryan and I had spent probably two or three years alone sitting you know as I said I sit in sweatpants covered with dog hair and uh, (laughs) you know and have my head bleed trying to make this all work and then when the ensemble came in and just enriched the entire story by giving their own versions of who these people are was really Stunning, and then every time their character came, they came on stage. Is in the you know there was a bar that they kept going to, and it every time they were one of the people in the bar, they had this whole full story. And I think oftentimes you don't even when you see really great ensembles, you don't even realize why is why are they feeling so full and so satisfying. It's because the generally comes from the director and choreographer working with the ensemble to make sure that you're real people and you're not just you know second villager from the left. Right. You know. What? Yeah. yeah. But I think a lot of performers don't realize you're allowed to do that if right. you're not that you you yeah. can become like figure it out yeah and if you're not told to do it and sometimes you have directors that encourage you to yeah. but to know that you can make that choice so that you're mm-hmm. not villager left yeah isn't gonna hurt anyone no and I also those are the people i always know that you know i, mm. I oftentimes look at on as, as I, I always i'm pretty good i think at looking at the whole stage and you know you always find people who are just so interesting and you know we're just making like really clear choices that both tell the sto- this whole story that the entire cast and, mm. and creative team are trying to tell. So it's all one. You know, you're all sort of on this, telling the same story essentially. But they're also making sure they're individuals within that story, yeah. and they're not pulling focus. They're just doing that. And if you look around a stage, you can often see the people who do that, and those are the people who you think, oh wow, that that person really looks authentic in that role. Yeah. So they're not just waiting for the next number to start. Right. Yeah. And almost every show has like a big crowd scene or an angry mob scene or a party scene. Just getting that down on paper just seems so like weird and technical. I mean, but you're like dealing with just body parts. Oh, here's a one-liner. Here's a one-liner. Right. How do you go through that? Because it's also just you're trying to get random plot across as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's a great question because 
when you're writing who says what when, clearly you have principles with a main story and a main conflict and obstacles and all those, you know, writerly things you're trying to get through in the scene. You're trying to make it get through the song, build the emotion to the song. You know, sometimes, especially in a crowd scene, you want other voices in. And does someone just suddenly start saying something? We don't know who they are, you know, how much you have to know about them. Those are all, all, all factors. I do try to write roles that I think use the ensemble, but that I know we can cast. Like, I'm mm. always aware of, oh, if you want to have an older person in an ensemble, that's a big dance show, for instance. Like, that probably means they can't. They can't be the lead dancer. Maybe they, you know, are they then a dancer? Or are they not? You yeah, know, like that kind of thing. So you have to write roles that you know people within the show can fulfill. If that makes sense, it I mean, does. That, yeah. Yes. So that I'm always like very aware of. You know, you also don't want going back to Memphis again. There's this. This show starts out with a song called Underground and this African American club, and and Dave Brown wrote this great song, really high energy. Sergio Trujillo did this great choreographer to it. You know, and then when this white guy walks in. Suddenly there's immediate tension because we know what this means. You know, your conflict's right there. But then all of these people have to react to it. And, you know, does some react or some, I remember Chris Ashley saying that, who is, you know, making people raise their hand, okay, who is sort of dangerously interested in this? Mm. Who just wants to get the hell out? You know, who is a, a writer and wants to think about this later so they can write it down? You know, yeah. like, like all those kind of questions. So that is stuff I do think about, about the ensembles. Like who, like how can we use them that's not just you know, angry mom. Yeah. Right. And are you part, like, say, with something like Diana, will mm-hmm. you be part of the initial casting of everything? Oh, yeah. You yeah. Are. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the lovely thing about being a writer in theater is since we own the copyrights to the shows, we get consulted about everything. I'm like, if you work for Hollywood, you, you sell your script, and then they can consult you or not. Oh, okay. So oftentimes yeah, you just want your script. Yeah. yeah, that's why, you know, I think people who can write for theater, who write for theater, like, love it because we actually get creative control and I mean it's collaboration certainly of course when you're casting ensembles now there are other things besides just me saying oh I like that person I like that person that person you know really is an interesting look to have on stage Mm -hmm. of course what you have to do as an ensemble member as, as you know is the music department has to say yes they can sing this song they can sing this score the choreographer, I say, yes, they can do the dances that I want to do. I have to say, well, they have, you know, six lines to say here, and I want to hear someone read the line and be a good enough actor. You know, sometimes now, you know, we're asking people to play instruments, you know, in the ensemble. So yeah. I always tell, you know, people who aspire to be in a Broadway ensemble is like, get good as many skills as you can. You know, especially when you're talking Broadway or national tour of that level, there's a lot of talented people in that room. Yes. And the people, you know, sometimes people can sing and dance and then you they have you, you know they're going to have to either cover a role or have a role where they have eight lines and you hear them read those eight lines or cover the role and there's someone else who can sing and dance as well as them but has actually figured out how to act yes and that's the person who gets the gig yeah that's the person who gets the gig you know and I know some ensemble people who also have played roles and who are older and have been doing this for a while like John Jellison who's been was in my show All Shook Up oh yeah and Memphis is now in Come From Away Jennifer Smith, who's in my show, Nice Worker, You Can Get It, and was in Gentleman's Guide and does tons of things. Both John and Jennifer have been around for a while, and they work all 
the time mm-hmm. because they can sing, and even though they're older, they can still move. Yeah, you know, no one's going to give them a dance solo, and they don't want to dance solo, yeah. but they can move, and they can certainly act, and they know what all that is. They, yeah, they know what that is, and they're invaluable because oftentimes I'm writing a show, I'm like, oh, well, John Jellison can do this. You know, like, like yeah, people in your mind, like I don't know how many other people are out there. Yeah. who can sort of do all this right now. A lot of my auditions, I'm getting called back in the ensemble to cover the older yeah. character roles. Right. But I'm not quite old enough to, but I'm yeah. in that older category yeah. where you're like, oh, not only am I asking to do everything like that, they, I have to possibly cover a 65-year-old right. man. Yeah. The expectations are greater. Yeah. I think that there are people out there to do it, but yeah. as you were saying, it's like, now do you play, do you play an instrument? And yeah. it's much more than yeah. Yeah. singing or yeah. dancing. Yeah. But sure, because like even, you know, you're still a very young man to me. But of course, if you came in, you're, you can still sing and dance and you have the energy to do eight shows a week, so oh, he can cover. Right, but I'm on the older side of a normal right. ensemble guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, now, especially now, I think people are much more aware of diversity in many ways in, the, in shows in the mm. ensemble, and one of that is age, yes. even body type. Yes. <laughs> you know, but even like, oh, do we get people who look more like a town as opposed, it depends on the show, right. you know, as opposed to just buff dancers. Kind of thing. Can we get all sorts of sorts of looks? But in terms of age, I think there's a point where you know men and women reach this side of 35, and you're like, in a pinch, you can cover the mom and exactly be, yeah. be a good enough actor to do that. Yes, is a good thing. Yeah. And when it comes to creating a town, your Broadway debut definitely had a town feeling with All Shook Up. Yes. A lot of people. I know a lot of people who are in it. Uh-huh. Uh, I didn't get to see it, but it's a very beloved show, uh, and I know people love doing it regionally, uh-huh. and it kind of fizzled out on Broadway and like disappeared. Uh, and it's way too soon. How is that? You know, I mean, you make your Broadway debut mm-hmm. and then it's kind of a broken right. heart. Oh my God, yeah. Well, All Shook Up was my first Broadway show. I was approached by the Elvis Presley estate to come up with this idea. Oh, cool. It was very cool. I was like, <laughs> I was like, wow. And I had written off Broadway stuff and plays and musicals and I Love You Perfect was running strong. And I got approached by this. And this was at the, the dawn of the modern jukebox mm. <laughs> era, probably 2000-ish. And Mamma Mia had just opened in London and was a sensation that we all kept hearing about. We hear it was coming here. And I got a call from the Elvis folks and they said, do you have an idea for Elvis? And I was like, well, I love Elvis. I, I think that music is just still fantastic. Yeah. And they said, we don't want to do a bio of him. Part of the reason was because uh, Priscilla, his wife, and Lisa Marie were still, you know, they're still around and they didn't want to sort of go through all that, but we'd love to do something, you know, like an original story. So I said, great. And I hung up the phone. I said, oh my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> so, but I had this idea about Shakespearean influences on Twelfth Night. And I thought, you know, the music of Elvis is magic and it's transcended time. And I said, who does that? I said, well, Shakespeare. Mm. So I thought, oh, so I sort of put Elvis and Shakespeare together and I put it in the small town, in the small depressed town in the middle of the country in the early 50s. And I wrote an Elvis-like character. We did a few readings of it and it was like a huge hit in these readings and the Elvis Presley people were like, anything you want, we'll do this. Producers were throwing themselves at it, like money was throwing them at it. We had this great developmental process. And uh, Cheyenne Jackson, who was cast as the understudy, producers couldn't work out a contract with the original person hired to play that role, uh, Chad. So they got rid of him and we got a call. Me and Chris Ashley got a call a week before we were about to start our first rehearsal in Chicago, in the out-of-town tryout, saying, how's, how's the understudy for uh, Chad? And we're like, well, he's really good, but what do, what do you mean? He goes, well, we just lost our leading man, and so we would like him to... Can he play it? And we're like, uh, let's call him in. So I think he came in, and uh, Cheyenne came, and Cheyenne had only understudied on Broadway at that point, I think. And, you know, he was, you know, 
uh, six foot two and great voice and very appealing, but had never carried a show. Right. And it's like 18 songs and it's like ridiculous amount of Elvis singing. So he came in and Chris worked with him for an hour and he was like, great, he'll, you know, he'll do it. And then he worked all credit to Cheyenne. He worked his ass off to really figure out how to do this and get in shape and, and all that kind of stuff you have to do. Anyway, so it was an exciting time and we opened the show in Chicago and it went really well. And then for whatever reason, it was sort of at the dawn of this new jukebox era and it didn't, wasn't well received critically. It was dismissed by the Tonys and it sort of came in less than maybe four or five months. And it's, it was heartbreaking, you know, it really was like, because I had put, what I had done was for two years, I did nothing but that show. Ugh. And anyone knows me, like I, really, I, I like to do several things at once. I like to have things in the cooker. I like to creatively be thinking about other things. So, but it was two years of just that. So the show opened and sort of people seemed to like it, but we weren't selling tickets and then it closed. And, you know, I sort of licked my wounds for a little bit and I said, okay, and I've known writers who had like like their big shot at something and it doesn't work. And I've known people to leave the business, to sort of just move somewhere and start teaching or do something else. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to do something that no one expects of me, which is I'm going to, instead of writing less and like working on one thing for a while, I'm going to like just double down and write twice as much as anyone expects. And I said, because I just said, I don't know what I said, I want to get back to Broadway. And All Shook Up was also... Backstage, it was a tough show. The, the producing team was tough. Harvey Weinstein was uh -huh. one of the producers when he was like, between when he lost his movie company, he suddenly got involved in all these Broadway shows and he was going to be the biggest Broadway producer ever. And he like loved the show one night and hated it the next night. So it was just, uh, that's, a, that's another podcast. Yes, that's a whole, that's a whole good story. So he was fascinating though. So I, I said, you know, I'm going to double down. I'm going to write twice as much as anyone expects. And then for two years, like my phone didn't ring. You know, I went from people calling me about projects and theaters asking me about new plays to like, it was, it was just a big public failure in, in, in many ways to people. And so I said, I'm just going to really keep my head down and write. And I just like spent years writing and that led to four years later after that Memphis opened on Broadway. So All Shook Up was a master class in me, how to handle a Broadway show and handle how to handle her that attention and the circus that comes around it, which yes. I learned you can't, you have to ignore. You have to just do your show and, and you know, and make it what you want it to be. Um, and I wrote some other things. So by two or three years later, I was starting to get produced again and produced more. I think I became a better writer because of it. I think I became a better writer because of it. And Memphis would not have been the show it is if I hadn't gone through that experience. So um, yeah, it was. I don't know where I got the, the wherewithal to do it. <laughs> I mean, for someone like me, I just kind of went through like a, a dark mm -hmm. period where yeah. I was like, do I get out of the business? Right. Do I do that? And to know someone like you who mm -hmm. I admire, you're like, no, just double down. Double down. And even if no one else knows you're doubling yeah. down, you don't yeah. have to do it yeah. in public, but you yeah. have to, if you still believe yeah. in it, that's and what I think is great. I'm a firm believer in, I'm a lifelong student of theater, of narrative, of politics, of people, you know, as a writer, like I'm just a lifelong student of, of, of that. I, I, I see a lot, I try to see a lot, I read a lot. I read a lot of history, I read a lot of bios, I mean, I really try to get better and better at what I do. And I think anyone in this business, in theater, actor, dancer, singer, anyone, always, whatever better is for you, always try to get better. Mm. Always try to get better. It doesn't mean you always will, but it's, it, 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 it just keeps you going too. It's like if you keep challenging yourself, even as a writer, there's always, um, like they call it in the music business, the sophomore album slump. Like you write that first album on instinct and yeah. it's a hit and you're a big famous pop star and this set and then you're like, 
well, the second one, do I copy what I did for the first one? Yeah. Which is what people sort of want, or do I write something that maybe extends me more, where that some I'll lose some fan? Like it's like that kind of thing. You always have to keep challenging yourself yeah. and never worry about what the reaction is. And I think as an actor too, you always have to get better and, and things. And you know, I always tell actors like audition as much as you can. Like it's auditioning is a muscle, and you never know what the creative team is looking for. Very right? true. Yes. Yeah. 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 So that's that's, that, but yeah, that's my old Shagup story. I really just doubled down, wrote more than anyone expected, and was able to sort of, uh, I think, come back from it stronger and, and, and better. And all Shagup still gets done all over the place. Oh, I'll, report. I'll, yeah, no, all over the place. It's great. So, yeah. well, I mentioned earlier shows that I didn't know you did. Uh-huh. It, that one of those was Toxic Avenger. Oh, yeah. I went and saw it on a fluke because I brought a friend of mine who loves like horror stuff. Mm-hmm. So I took him because I had no interest and loved it and went back and saw it again. Oh, great. Because it was so unique and uh-huh. I think now that I, some of my favorite stuff that you've done uh-huh. for me is the stuff that's kind of outside the normal right. box uh-huh. like Toxic Avenger and later we'll talk about uh, Ernest Shackleton. Yeah. Those are the stuff that I've like related to. Uh-huh. It seems like you're as as comfortable as you are in mainstream yeah. with something like Memphis. Yeah. The weird off Broadway Toxic Avenger, you're just as comfortable in uh-huh. that. That's a weird. Uh, that's <laughs> yes. a weird part of your brain to open up. Uh-huh. Well, I you know because I, I started like so, so mainstream. I mean, I love your perfect now change and my play Over the River and Through the Woods, which is this Neil Simon esque grandparents comedy that gets still done all over the world. Like that. That's like as ma- I started out as mainstream as you could, and there was there was a time for off Broadway commercial theater, and they you know those shows just did very well for me, and I love them stuff. My interest in theater is like I like going see weird stuff. I like arty stuff. I like all sorts, and I love really mainstream things. So I, I have all that. So, but I always like to push myself, and so for Toxic Avenger, what happened was we were waiting. David Bryan and I were waiting for Memphis to come into town, and there was a rights issue with the original producer that we knew we had to wait a couple of years before it could mm. come into town because there were people interested in bringing it in. I got a call from a producer saying, "Joe, do you know the Tromaville movie, The Toxic Avenger?" And I remember as like a kid watching it, and I remember it being not even a, a B movie, like a D movie, right? Like it's just <laughs> like, like okay. And I was like, I do, and I immediately thought. You know, David, Brian, and I are both from Jersey, and it's about the most polluted town in New Jersey, and this nerdy guy gets jumped into a vat of toxic goo and becomes a superhero and goes up cleaning up New Jersey and saving the environment, which uh, gets more and more uh, relevant as, as, you know, with climate change and all that. So, and I thought, like, God, David and I would be fun to write a really small rock and roll comedy that I knew we could get done in New York off Broadway, because it's just a few people. And when I got this call, I said, Oh, this is Theater of the Ridiculous. Those old Charles, those great Charles Bush shows, um, which I'd seen a few. And it just needs to be like people playing multiple roles and just out there. And it could be crude and it could be whatever we wanted it to be. And I knew David had a garage band 80s rock and roll sound in him. And I love comedy and David's very funny. So I said, let's just like write this thing that's just wild and out there and is going to offend some people and is going to be rude. And we just like love the idea. We, yeah. We both Jersey boys, so we knew all the Jersey jokes and yeah. we made up a whole lot more. And that's how we did it. And that show did, you know, and we were able to get that show come into town before Memphis, which was very helpful because I think also David really learned, well, what it's like to have a show in New York because it's, it's its own unique experience in terms of attention and expectations and stuff. 
And that show ran for a year and just ran in London and they just filmed it for Broadway HD in London. Really? Yeah, it's going to be sort of uh, in this wild production that's even raunchier than it was here. The Brits, God bless the Brits. And yeah. was like, you know, they love their raunch over there. So it's really fun and funny. And it's, you know, we had a great, I mean, the guy that show had a great, Nick Cordero was the lead and Nancy Opal had, you know, we wrote a duet for her. That duet, I think what that duet did was what Jekyll and Hyde tried to do and wasn't successful, having a duet with yourself. Nancy Opal, yeah. I mean, that was almost the re- reason I went yeah. and saw it a second time. Yeah. Nancy so, Opal was brilliant in that. She, um, we wrote that because that was a, that was a takeoff on Jekyll and Hyde. Because I was like, you know, oh, yeah. Thing, where he's doing his hair. And and, then, you know, and that was Bob Cuccioli, who was, fa- was fantastic in that show. And I'm like, he made that thing work. But I was like, he's having a duet with himself. Yeah. And, no one, and didn't the creators think this is kind of silly? So we just said, let's take it to our thing. Yeah. yeah. And we wrote that because we did a, that in the first read-through, we did a table read. And John Rando was directing it. And Nancy Opel, who I'd never met, but was a huge fan of and still am. We, we had done a table read, and that number wasn't in it. But the, during the first act, I realized, you know, she play, she's playing the mother of the the nagging mother of the hero and the evil mayor of the town. I said, what if they, like, knew each other and they were enemies and she had a duet with herself? And so I go to Nancy. Dave and I, like, tonight just wrote a duet. Could you learn it tomorrow? And we do it out with yourself. And... Ask an actor, do they want to have a duet with himself? The answer is yes. Yes. So, yeah, so I learned that. That's one thing I learned from Nancy Opal. She didn't, I think like, oh, she's going to have to do this extra work. She's like, I wanted to do a duet with myself. So that's how, and I literally wrote bitch, slut, liar, whore on a piece of paper and showed it to Dave. And he, we stayed overnight and we wrote it, wrote it for her. And she was just genius in that show. Genius. Yeah, and she's genius in everything she does. But, oh, yeah, she really but, is. Yeah, but, I, but I like pushing myself. I like doing different things. Yeah, and I think I have a couple of other, you know, weirder things coming up, which I really enjoy. So. That's great. Yeah. I think, I know myself included, don't realize the long road to Broadway. Yeah. So Memphis started up at North Shore Music Theater, right. and it also went to San Diego before it came to Broadway. So you were working on it for how many years before it actually... Oh, in New York? That was a long one, because what happened was we went to North Shore and then Theater Works in Palo Alto, oh. which was sort of a co-production. And then there were rights issues, which we had to wait two or three years with the original producer. The good thing about waiting that long is David and I, we wrote Toxic Avenger, we got better as a team. I started working with Chris Ashley, and he was a perfect director for it. So the weight actually sort of helped us in a way. But that was, I mean, we weren't working on it for, but that was like seven or eight years. By the oh my first gosh. Production. Yeah, yeah. And, P, and it was, you know, it was a hit when it first, oh, North Shore did great up North Shore, did great in Palo Alto. But you wait. Yeah, it takes a while. That's why I like to work on multiple things. Yeah. Yeah. With Memphis, then you you became a Tony winner. And you won the Tony for Best Musical. Uh, you won the Tony for Best Book. I mean, that's pretty amazing to go from being kind of panned in yeah. the first Broadway yeah. show, and then your second, yeah. you're handed a Tony. Right. So, I mean, like, just because it's cheesy. I wonder, how, how was that to get a Tony? Because that's pretty crazy. Awesome. Uh, it was crazy, and it was uh, and it was well, because, you know, four, uh, four, four years before, All Shook Up was snubbed by the Tonys. For even some categories like set design and choreography, you think, well, of course they're going to nominate this. I yeah. mean, clearly it's better than the, the Tony committee. I find when they love you, they love you, and when they want to ignore you, they ignore you. Yeah. If there were a lot of shows open, we opened in a busy season, that, that really hurts you. So to go from that and to sort of work as hard as I did for four years and then to bring this show in that no one expected to do as well as it did. And there were a lot of like very hyped shows coming in. We opened very early in the season. We opened in October. And there were all these shows that people were expecting to be big hits and for whatever reason they weren't. Mm. And so we were, we were, and then they went, oh, what about Memphis? I think they sort of looked back and said, oh, we really like that show. You know, these other shows we're expecting to, to like, not so much. So... 
we won four Tonys, I think it was. It was it was it was amazing because it was sort of like childhood dream stuff come yeah. true. Like I remember thinking the day after I won the Tony, I wasn't a better writer, but everyone thought I was, and that was the best thing about it because suddenly you got other offers. You you know like suddenly the, the having the Tony winner moniker to your attached to your work is just helpful in getting it produced. It's helpful in everything. Do awards matter in the long run? In the scheme of things, maybe, maybe not, but they do matter in terms of a career and, and, and your work. And so that was really uh, special. Yeah. 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 And then with Nice Work, You Can Get It, which mm-hmm. I, I love that show. You were, got a Tony nomination. Huh? Is it weird to uh, say, you're like, it's not completely an original idea. It's, it's kind of, here's the music. You kind of have to figure it out. Where did yeah. that come into play? I was approached by the Gershwins early on oh, okay. about writing the show. Crazy For You had been a huge hit for them, and it was, uh, they considered it a dance musical. But the Gershwins mm. also had written what they would consider just musical comedies. They called them the Princess Musicals, because they took place in the Princess Theater. And they were just, they wrote them as throwaways, because no one expected the shows or the music. It was pre Rodgers and Hammerstein, so they were just like, they would suddenly have a character who suddenly starts juggling, because... There was a juggler who they hired, or mm. there was, you know, a ukulele player because they had a guy, you, you know, a uke player, and he was, he was very popular. So they had these like ramshackle but sort of fun books, and they said take uh, any of these. I, I think they actually was specifically OK, O H, comma K A Y, mm. which was written for Gertrude Lawrence, and adapt it and take all of these songs, any song you want, essentially, and make it into a comedy. So I came up with Nice Work if you can get it which originally played Good Speed called uh, They All Laughed years before. Oh. And then it sort of sat in a drawer and then like a producer picked it up, nothing happened, the usual showbiz story, and then it sat in a drawer and I got a call one day from a producer saying who wanted to develop a show with the Gershwins and they, and the, the Gershwins always pushed that script, the Gershwin Estate, because they always liked it and, they, and this producer said, I really read your script, would you be interested in me producing this on Broadway and Kathleen Marshall, who was married to, <laughs> directed. I was like, hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally sitting in a draw for years. I'm like, wait, what? You know, you know, I sort of forgotten about it. I sort of based that, what I loved about that script, you always need, as a writer, you always need an in into something. Like, what attaches you to the script? And the couple times I didn't have that, or I think been my least successful efforts, at least I consider creatively, where I don't have whatever's within me that's attached to the script that, 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 that makes it go. And, but I grew up loving the comedies of George Kaufman, being a movie buff, so I love the Screwballs, uh, the Billy Wilder comedies, uh, Bring Up Baby, all those. And I said, oh, this is my chance to write a George Kaufman play. A lot of characters. George Kaufman always said, I always have an actor come in who we haven't seen in the third act, who's funny because it gives the whole show a list. Right. Well, you can't do that now because, you know, like, but in this I could. And yeah. then I wrote a role for the lead character's mother and this sort of 10-minute cameo that we got stars to play on oh, Broadway yeah. and a Gonquit. Yeah. You know, amazingly, I got to write my George Kaufman play and then yeah. got done on Broadway with Matthew Broderick and Kelly O'Hara and Judy Kaye and Michael McGraw, like this great cast. Still gets done all over the place. So, yes, yeah. it does. But, that's, but that's, how, that's how that show started was basically, and it sat, and you know, it's why the thing, this business is never a straight line. Right. Like you think, you know, you sort of maybe think it is when you're starting out and you have to learn how to go with the ups and downs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they want me, they don't want me, I'm doing well, you know, I feel, I feel connected to my creativity, I don't feel connected, like all that stuff's important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, after that, you got a, a second Tony nomination, uh-huh. then your uh, next thing, big thing you did was Living on Love. Yeah which seemed like it was kind of a down. Uh, the audiences didn't like it. You know, I actually saw, I actually got tickets right in the front row. I really enjoyed it. I mean, just see Renee Fleming yeah. that close. Mm-hmm. I mean, and Douglas Sills that close. And so sometimes I'm not always a good judge of what right. the general public likes because 
you mean, I thought it was an interesting take into yeah. the backstage world of opera and performing uh-huh. and a different class of people. Yeah. And so I thought it was a great, enjoyable piece, yeah. but it didn't even last hardly at all. Yeah. That, well, Loving on Love was, I was, uh, that was also producer Scott Landis and his wife Kathleen called me about it. They mm. had this old Garson Kane in play, which never quite worked, about an opera singer, sort of a melodrama. They were taking it to Williamstown and they wanted someone to tweak the book. Tweak the, the, not the book, the, the play actually, because it was a play with a little bit of music. Mm. And so they asked me and they said, we have Renee Fleming. I'm like, oh, oh my God, Renee Fleming. And they already had a date and I was like, well, I'm busy, but... I like the idea and I like, you know, working at Williamstown. Sometimes, especially for commissions now, I mean, there's some commissions that I just like love the idea of, but oftentimes I commission, I need to be excited by the people I'll be working with. Mm. Like I need to feel like creatively I'll learn something, they'll push me, I have a connection to it. And I thought, oh, this could be just like nice work was my George Kaufman comedy. This could be my almost 1950s, you know, they used to do a lot of these comedies in the 50s where one set and glamorous people and act, glamorous people acting badly. And I re- started rewriting this play a little bit and I was like, you know what, I think I need to rewrite this, like do a rewrite on this. This was an adaptation of this play and we did it at Williamstown and it was a huge hit there and the audiences loved it and it was really funny. And Renee was just delightful. Doug Sills was brilliant. And they said, you know, we're going to take it to Broadway. And I was like, oh, and like sort of, that was sort of new. So, but Renee had this like tiny schedule thing and da da da. And then it went to Broadway and it just didn't, you know, audiences seemed to be laughing just as much as Williamstown from the get go. And then the critics were not happy and there was no, it's also, that was also a show with no advance sale, mm. which is really hard to do. Like, whatever a star is on Broadway and who sells tickets. We were just we just didn't have that at that time, so it was tough to survive that, and you know, it played I think for a month. And it's got another production since then, but you know, you, like anything, you like I thought like okay, I enjoyed the experience, I enjoyed writing it, I enjoyed the people I worked with, yeah, and you move on. It wasn't a show that came from my gut that wrecked me. It was a show I thought was funny and delightful, and people seemed to like. And as I said, you never know in this business. You, ne- you never do. <laughs> One thing I've noticed, and this is like a general blanket statement: when a show doesn't work, yeah. They always say, if a musical doesn't work, they're like, oh, bad book, bad well, book. Name the book writer, yes. <laughs> how, how come it's the book writer that always gets thrown out? And it's always like, book? people are always like, oh, great scores exist out there with bad books. You know, like, like it's always that. I, it's funny, it's really, people do blame it. You know, book writing is 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 a very specific skill, and it's, and it's hard. And, you know, in a, in a book of a musical, you have to write, you have to let the song provide the emotion of the piece so you, first you need the right songs and then you and the composer have to be you know working in tandem to really mm. make sure it's all of a piece and when it works as i said you know when it works you don't you're not even aware when they start singing right you know like it just is like this is the story i'm telling the story but you know a lot of uh, i say a lot of shows have what i call balladitis which is too many ballads especially in the second act where everyone starts singing about your feet their feelings so i'm like oh and sometimes critics love it. I'm like, oh no, this is hard to sit through. Just stop singing about your feelings, please. Not in, you know, like one ballad here, one ballad there. We're good to go. Yeah. So it's true, and and you know, and but then also what lasts is the album. So you hear the album and you say, oh my god, this is such so brilliant. And you know, you don't know what the book is right. until you've seen it. I think like Mac and Mabel is a great example. It's a great score. Great yeah. Score by Jerry Herman. But that book never worked. And I haven't seen it in a long time, but I just saw a piece of it on an encore show. Me too. Yeah, yeah. which was good. Yeah, was like, really Doug good. Doug Sills was great. Unbelievable. And you're like, why is this, this should be a big hit. Yes. But then, you know, it's about 
Mabel Norman has a drug addiction, like all sorts of things. Mm. So, so, but I mean, I, I sort of think someone, the right person can make it work. But a lot of it is, is, is the composer and the book writer working in tandem and, and doing all that. So blame the book writer is the first thing about a flop musical. Yeah. <laughs> no one ever blames. The, right. No, they don't blame. Yeah. They, I mean, rarely do they, oh, that, that yeah. choreography was terrible. Right. Oh, the direction was bad. You're like, always yeah. like, oh, the book was bad. I was like, yeah. maybe the book was good, but right. it was directed poorly. I mean, I always feel like they, yeah. no matter what. It's not a thankless job because when it works, you know, you're, right. you're thanked a lot. One thing, I, the relationship the writer does have, not only to the, the ensemble, but also to the cast. When I've done big Broadway musicals, the uh, writer's table just seems so crazy with rewrites and this uh-huh. and that. And, and it's not that they're unapproachable, you just uh-huh. never approach them. But then it, I'm always shocked that there are the performers that will just, to a person that's been spending four years with this uh-huh. role by themselves, just honestly say, yeah, my character wouldn't say that. I just always find that that's like a weird conversation to have with the writer who's like, how do you know yeah. your character doesn't yeah, I think say it that? Dep- you know, it's, it's because... And especially it depends on a play versus a musical. Like the big people say, always ask me, what's the difference? In a play, there are many less people in the room. So it's generally you, a director, or a writer, a director, actors. Mm. Generally, designers come in way late, right? So, and you spend three or four days sitting around the table just reading the play, and then an actor will ask you questions, you'll ask them questions, and then it's a real give and take. In a musical, there are so many people in the room. Right? There's a choreographer. There's assist. Everyone has an assistant. Yeah. You know. There's the music director. There's a music supervisor. There's just you know. There's more producers because it's a much more money. It's a bigger com- you know. So there's a lot going on. And then there's many more people in the cast. Yeah. You know, like a small mid-sized Broadway musical is 20 people now. So yeah. There's just more layers. And I always find it funny because as a writer, I think when I first started writing, I was like. I want everyone in the room to like me. You know, I just want it to be like. <laughs> and then you realize that there's so much input, you sort of have to like find, you know, be pleasant to people, hopefully, but find, you know, do your work and, and, and sort of focus on that. I never mind, maybe this comes from experience, when people, you know, have suggestions or thoughts or I love questions because sometimes a question is, sometimes I can answer it, sometimes you're asking the question because, oh, I didn't really do that character isn't filled in, in enough, mm. or, this does, or this is contradicting what I said. You know, because what happens as a writer, I am looking at the enti- overall picture and many characters. You, as an actor, are spending your day thinking about your character. So, and then I totally get that. You have a focus on that character that I never had. So I'm sort of interested in your oh, okay. opinion, or not opinion of him, but because I actually don't think an actor should have an opinion of their character. I think they should figure out their character and not judge him, you know. Yeah, like me, yeah, as a writer, I should never, you know, you need to not. Right, exactly. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but if you have questions, I, I do want to know. it. And, and I always think the ensemble members, almost to a T, know how good a show is or isn't. You can almost ask an ensemble <laughs> member, right? Well, yes. Yes, because you got this, you know, there's so, because there, you actually have down, I mean, you guys are doing a lot, and dang, da, 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 but you have downtime when you guys are, A, just watching and listening, and you see the numbers and the principles, and you guys are in the story, but you're also following it in a way the principles are just really worried about their yeah. characters. And you're usually a, a swing or an understudy, so right. you're watching all of that yeah. stuff from a different perspective. Yes, and you can see it, and in a show like Nice Work, if you can get it, there, which is very sort of traditional uh, musical comedy, there's this, uh, the big scene, at the big reveal scene at the end, is at this wedding that gets interrupted. So the ensemble has come on and danced on and sung on about this wedding, and they're all standing around. And like a George Kaufman copy, there's all these revelations and things happen and people get together. Well, the ensemble's standing around, and, you know, and it's like a well-lit comedy, and they're like looking at the audience like, 
oh, this is working. This is like, so not, <laughs> I can see the ensemble. Like, oh, we're full tonight. Oh, it's just a little light for a Friday. You know, like, always ask, not that they would ever tell me, but I'm like, oh, if you know people in the ensemble, they'll tell you. And I'll sometimes ask people, like, so what do you think of this? Yeah. And they generally, you know, are very positive. But sometimes if I'm really push, I'm, I'm always interested in what people think. Because the ensemble, the, you know, as I said, the ensemble knows what's going on. Yeah, they yeah. definitely do. Yeah, because you've been, I, like, I'm sure you've been in shows, and I guess I know people in shows, you know, you get that, like, feeling of you're happy you're in a show, you want to be positive, you're working, but every once in a while I have a friend who's in a show, you know, and they're like, I don't know, but, you know, they're, you can just tell them they're, like, they're making weird decisions oh, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, and it's true. I mean, because I, and especially some of the uh, mm-hmm. more veteran ensemble right. members, I made my Broadway debut, and Casey Nicola was in the ensemble with me, and I was, like, so excited, and he was like, Brad, this isn't going to run. So <laughs> I have to let you know that. And I was like, yes, it is. It's, it's yeah. so, like, they, certain ensemble members. That's so funny. Yeah, he, yeah, I mean, yeah. he, like, he was yeah. just kind of like, I hate to say this, but save your paycheck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I was pissed. And then he was right. The ensemble, they do. They, they have a different, yeah. and they also sometimes go from show to show to show. Yeah. And they see different things right. and they yeah. see what works. Yeah. Well, it's amazing. You know, you have an ensembles, especially people who can really sing and really dance and can act, can go from show to show now. Yeah. And, and they see, you know, they see a lot and each because you, you know this more than I do probably each creative team is different and some are very welcoming yep. like I always hope I'm welcoming and open some aren't but there are some times as a writer where I need to just focus on like I know what I know how to fix something I just need to go and do it right but it, it's also because as a writer we also get input from producers and if it's a Broadway musical there's a lot of producers yeah. <laughs> and it's always dealing with like that but the people in the show are the people whose opinions I'm most interested right. in right well, I, and I find, too, that there are some, like yourself, some creative team, people that mm-hmm. want the ensemble to become a crowd and to be yeah. part of the storytelling, right. and other creative teams that want them to be set dressing and to be the background. Right. So, and both are valid depending on the show, but it's also, you don't know until you're in the room. Yeah. You know, right. you could be in the room and have so much to give, yeah. and they're like, we didn't want for you to bring anything to the table, we want right. you to set the table. And then I would also think from your point of view, like... Is the creative team getting along? Are they like? Are, are they? You know? Yes. Are they fighting in the room? Are they fighting? You know? Like I've never. I, I've heard stories about other creative teams. There's only one director who I actually worked on a show years ago. It was a Broadway thing, and who I realized in the middle of the show, this guy doesn't like the show. He's like trying to push uh-huh. us in a way, and I, that was tough. But I've otherwise always gotten along with my directors and and things. But with me and my collaborators on a musical like David Bryan, who I work with a lot, and we get along great and we've never had a fight but we'll never disagree in front of cast members you know we might say we might say oh this what about that you know we might you might see us working say what about yeah. this what about this no I like this better you might see that I would never say you know I think we should really redo this song it's like all that kind of like or you oh. know it's like no I like it we, we never disagree because I think that's bad just for the process yeah. Yeah. Kind of thing. We first met up in a gonquit on Dan Yankees because you had rewritten the script and updated right. it to make it more current, which was really great, especially working in New England because it was the Boston Red yes. Sox as opposed to the Washington Senators. Senators. Yep. Is being a show doctor something that you've done before? Is it something you do often? Time to time. You know, uh, it's, it's fun. The, the fun thing about it is there's a skeleton there, and if you can see what the process is, mm. you know. And I sort of did that initially for North Shore Music Theater. It was supposed to be a one-off. Okay. Because they had started Memphis, and I know John Kimball used to run it, and he was a friend, asked me as a favor. So I was like, oh, this is cool, and, you know, damn Yankees, how great. And then I looked at the script, and I'm like, oh, yeah, this could really use some, yeah. you know, touching up here. And the, you know, kind of thing. So, yeah, so I have, and I've, I've done a couple script doctor things lately, some secretly, some not so secretly. Yeah, every once in a while I feel like it's, it's like another creative challenge. Generally, especially if a show isn't 
working or has problems, people generally are very happy to see you. That's the thing. People are generally very happy to see you. So that's nice. I've worked in a, I've worked in one or two rehearsal rooms where they were just so happy that there was a writer there who they, they at least thought could help them. Yeah. You know, as opposed to someone who was sort of, you know, was let go or left the project or something. I only do it if I think I can really help. Right. And if I have the time. If I'm not stepping on another writer's toes. I mean, one thing which I love about theater is since we own our own copyrights, it's not like L.A. where... You just, it's like, hi, okay, thanks for this draft, and then they'll call four more writing teams, and they'll right. rewrite it, and then your name is on it or it isn't. But, you know, here, so I try to, and I've, I've just sort of replaced a writer on a project who I respect greatly. He's won all sorts of awards, almost legendary. But I call, I emailed him, and I said, I just want to make sure that you're right. And he goes, yes, I'm sort of, I don't know what else to do, so take some of my work, whatever you need, and do what you need to do. Uh-huh. But I wouldn't do it without his permission. His blessing. How does that actually work with the point system? Because I don't... Mm. It's always sometimes confusing, like, who gets a certain amount of points, the writer gets two, and then actor yeah. gets two, but then if when it's done in Timbuktu, the original director, does he get a, still get have a point when he didn't direct it? Like, where does, like, legally go? Because... Which is great to know that the writer and composer always have right. You're, what you're talking about is the percentage of the property. And right. as you write for theater... Uh, what people love writing about theater is you and your copyright. So, for instance, Diana, which is an original idea by me and then David Bryan's my collaborator, we own that show. So when this producer has essentially options it for production, they get probably three years to bring it to Broadway. Okay. So they have to pay us whatever. We negotiate. After three years or whatever, their option's up. And then we could, if they don't bring it to Broadway, we could... Uh, license it to someone else. If they do bring it to Broadway, then they vest in the property. And so what happens is with the creative team, there's a, there's points, which is essentially royalty percentage. I'm not a mathematician by any stretch, and it's confusing, but I think there are, for the writing team, like six points okay. out of the 100 points. So generally it would go two points to the lyricist, two points to the composer, and two points to the book writer. All right. Traditionally, people like uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein, and even actually me and David Bryan, we just split everything 50-50 just cause, to make it a total collaboration. And I don't care if this is a scene or a song. I just want what works best here to, to be. We sort of always have that. Now, the director, depending on how successful they are, how good their agent is, can sometimes try to get a portion of that or an extra portion from the producers. Okay. So that just depends on what they can negotiate. Choreographer, same thing. Gets them usually like The director usually gets a point from the producers. Choreographer usually gets a point. Sometimes director choreographer will get three points, so it's just all a negotiation. But that refers to then the subsidiary rights, which are once beyond Broadway or your first class productions, it's a percentage of, of the rights on the road. So when a regional theater does it, oh okay, you know, every everyone still gets a percentage of it. But that's mostly to the writers. Those points are mostly to the writers. Deservedly so, yeah. You know, because the director's work gets interpreted. There's always uh, I know the directors guild has been trying to get more points like the right take some of the writer's percentage and the drama guild has been fighting that yeah for good reason yeah so you know so yeah but my thing about points and things it's everyone always has to be happy walking in the room because you always have to have an, a, a collaborative creative team you always you can't have like financial stuff or i didn't get the deal i wanted so i'm right i'm yeah. gonna be pissy about this you know you need to have that freedom of expression and i always like to work with people who I always tell them, you can tell me anything. You can say, I don't like this line. I can tell you you're right or not. But yeah. I don't get insulted about the work. I just want to make it the best it can be. And so you just need a free atmosphere. No, oh, that's so great. Yeah, because I never understood that. It's, it's confusing. It, <laughs> even I, even that's how I make my living. There are times where yeah. I'm like, 
huh, well, some lawyer came up with this system. Yeah. Yeah. But well, I mean, it's good to know that the, the writers and the inception of it is somewhat protected. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, that's, and, and it's also different if you get a commission. Because, like, if mm. Disney calls you and says, hey, can you do the, write this for us? Well, then they can, I've never worked for Disney, but I don't know what, they can give you a percentage or not. You know, there's just all sorts of other things going on there. Which is why when you can create your own original work, like Memphis was an original work, Diane is an original work, it's a different thing. Right. Yeah. So we haven't actually worked together since Agonquet, but we've randomly kept in touch. I mean, if in the beginning it was socially, and then I just started asking you questions about writing in different formats, and I never really did anything with it. And then I finally finally started to even had a lunch in San Diego one time when you were there, because right. that's where I'm from. About, I don't know, almost a year ago, I finished my first act of my first play and I was like you know what I should like just text Joe and say mm-hmm. I actually finished a first act and I look up and there it says Joe DiPietro Ernest Shackleton loves me <laughs> and I was like I'm texting him right now and you were like great do you want to come to the final dress and I saw that and I was pretty wowed by it because again it was completely out of the box mm-hmm. like I don't know how you came up with some of that idea you know what I mean and like people coming out of freezers and being real. And I was like, now this is a whole other thing. So again, back into the off-Broadway world Mm -hmm. for you. How how is doing that? Well, I like to do, you know, and I think sometimes, at least critically, like they're confused by me because I always do different things. Like I I don't do, you know, just, uh, uh, I don't keep writing the same play. I don't keep writing the same themes. I I, I, I try to do different things, um, which I love to do. But Ernest Shackleton Loves Me is a two-person musical. And basically, a few years back, I bumped into a songwriting team, Valerie Vigoda and Brendan Milburn, who uh, were married at the time and wrote a show called Striking 12, which played uh, downtown. And it's about it's a, it's a Hans Christian Andersen New Year's Eve story, the little match girl. They basically was a band who told the story and played the instrument and sang the song, but it was very theatrical. Val was the star. She was just magnetic you just whatever you just looked at her she plays the electric violin mm. she has this great voice they're looking for to write something for Val just sort of a one woman show and I met them at a, at a party and I said oh, I really liked your stuff I said I bet we could write something interesting together because you guys are really like downtown and I'm much more midtown guy yeah. so I'm like you'd make me a little edgier and I'd straighten you guys out a bit and it could be really interesting which I love doing I love working with people of almost a different aesthetic than I do they said okay we'd love to do that but we don't want to we want to write something for Val but not like you know, a modern woman dating, and like we don't want any of that kind of stuff. And I'm like, and and Val said, you know, we just saw this Ernest Shackleton exhibit at the Met. What about like the Ernest Shackleton story? And she, they sort of laughed. I think they thought it was a joke. And I said, well, that's interesting. And I went home and I Wikipedia Ernest Shackleton, who's this unbelievable Arctic explorer who sort of went on the most amazing rescue mission probably in exploration history, certainly in Antarctica. And I came up, and like a week later, I think I emailed them an outline. I just had this like crazy idea of this woman who... It's crazy. ...sends this dating <laughs> video out, and her life is just... seems like it's too hard for her to handle. And she gets a call from Ernest Shackleton, who wants to take her on the journey of the endurance. It's his famous journey, and he comes out of her refrigerator, this whole thing, and she sort of learns that she needs to be her own hero in the thing. So I just wrote the show with them and played, you know, here and there over the years. And we got a great production up in the Second Stage Theater. What I loved about it was it was just 
wilder than anything I've ever written, and it was a big hit there. And like, you just have to keep challenging yourself. Yeah. But that's and that's right. That's when you text me. And, yeah, and there was that day were. I was like, you know, yeah. and you're like, yeah. are you available Thursday yeah. night? And I was like, yes. Yeah, yeah. Question about writing for specific actors. Yeah. Wade McCollum, uh, I think, uh, is fantastic. Yeah. And when I saw that show, I was like, no one else can ever play this role. Yeah. I'm also a huge fan of Michael McGraw, who's done mm-hmm. both right. two big shows. How is it twofold writing for someone of that caliber, thinking no one else can ever? play it mm-hmm. and then years later seeing someone else play it they do justice because they made it their own yeah. well I don't think I write thinking someone else can never play this mm. it's interesting can anyone else but Wade play that no <laughs> <laughs> you can play you can uh, so there, no you Cookie I can play Cookie, I don't think play. Shackleton <laughs> heck no <laughs> well it's funny because Val we were trying to cast that show and we were I think doing a reading out of town or, or a, maybe a production even out of town and Val said what about Wade McCollum I'm like I know that name and turns out Wade had auditioned two or three times for the Toxic Avenger. And always, like, was our second or third choice. I think he knows this, so I can say this. So there's always, like, because I went back and looked at my, like, audition season. Oh, right. And he almost, like, almost always got it. And she goes, you know, we worked with him on Toy Story. They did a Toy Story version for Disney cruise ships. And they're like, he's great. And I was like, okay, you know, so it was, like, fine. And then he walked in the room and I remembered him. And then once he started doing it, I was like, oh, there's something a voice in my head that I write to. Mm. So I don't necessarily think that, I think that, we, you know, I think Wayne was obviously fantastic right. and it might be the best who's ever done it. You know, other people hopefully will play that role. God, like, he's great in that. I and mean, that's on Bro HD. You can see Wade McCullum on Bro HD. Yes. And listen, we just, CD was just released. And then like Michael McGraw, for instance, had done, actually done a couple plays of mine out of town too. Oh, really? Yeah, my, and there's certain people just have your, like, they just know your voice. And Michael, I can just, like, I, you know, I've written, he was in a drama of mine, he played the heavy in Memphis, he was the big comic relief in a show full of comic relief and nice work, and he won a Tony for it. And he was in Spam a lot with you, yes. and he was great. You know, Michael's just one of those, like, guys of the theater, you know? Yeah. He just is like a guy of the theater. And I, I didn't necessarily write that role for him, but his voice just fit so perfectly as I continued to write it. He just was sort of always there in my mind. And Matthew Broderick, who came in nice where we can get it, when he first read the script, and I never met, I certainly knew his work, he never met the man. When I first met him, he said, you know, I feel like as if you've written this for me. And I was like, I didn't, because, <laughs> you know, unless yeah. I did it from afar, but yeah. I, I just didn't. I mean, Matthew's one of the funniest people I've ever met, and he can make any, like, he can make, hi, can I have a cup of coffee funny. Right. So it was just like having him spin those lines was just, you know, him and Michael and oh. Jamie Kay and Kelly and everyone, they were just magic. So then I wound up eventually writing the show because then I started hearing Matthew's voice and Kelly's voice and Michael's voice for them. But, you know, but they were just, they, it was just the right actor who finds your voice and finds that role. Yeah. yeah. So I found it interesting because I just finished my first play. Mm-hmm. I've done like a bunch of readings, some in class. Some actors I've had do it almost the whole time mm-hmm. and then others are new. And it's just so weird because you hear it one way and then all of a sudden another actor comes in and completely does it a new twist and you're like, there it is. And it's just interesting that the voice in your head isn't the voice that's gonna end, eventually come out. I don't know, even know some of these actors, if it even gets done, if they'll ever do it again. But now I'm writing for that voice that I didn't yeah. know was there before. Right. Where I was like, oh, that character's now the antagonist when he used to just kind of be the brother and that actor brought it to it. I find that fascinating. I mean, in just my little knowledge that when you have these amazing actors that come in and change, they don't change the words, they just change the intention to something that they saw that's different. Right, and that's what good actors do. You know, they before a reading or an audition, they study the script and they figure out how do, how do I make sense of this? And Which is great, because I've been making sense of it one way for generally many years by the time an actor hits the page. And now, have you done an audition process? 
No, because that's because then you have fifteen actors come in, oh. and each has a, and you see them one after another. And especially in a comedy, it's so interesting that sometimes you have some people come in and they're either they just don't hear a comic voice, they're just maybe not necessarily funny actors. And you listen to it and you're like, oh my god, this script isn't funny at all. What was I thinking? I got to throw this away. It doesn't work at all. Why yeah. are these people producing it? Yeah. And then someone comes in and they just are funny. Like a Michael McGraw comes in. And yeah. Everything and the words dance in the air and it's, it's funny. So it really is. And just sort of actually a, a project that I'm working on is a Toulouse Le Trek musical. Sort of a commission. I sort of came in to sort of book doctor it a bit with Kathy Marshall. And Toulouse Le Trek was sort of he was I think four foot eleven. He wasn't a little person, but he his leg were broken a lot when he was young because his parents were first cousins and they married and he had some sort of illness that's been eradicated but was stunted and you know whenever you see like in the 50s we uh, Moulin Rouge the movie from the not the more recent ones the earlier one mm. I think actually even Jean-Luc Leguizamo in a more recent one they always play him on his knees like yes he's, you know, really short well we I was talking to Kathleen I was like you know let's look for someone who has a disability because this was a story about a character who had this really painful disability and was mocked for it and had to deal with a lot of health issues and died very young but he created some of the most beautiful art of the century so which is such a great dichotomy like how do you create something so gorgeous and be so viewed as a freak by people yeah it was really sort of cruel how he was treated by many people so we, we interviewed people with disabilities and so, and this is a musical with, with a real score, so it has to be sung. And some great actors of all abilities and types sort of came in to audition for this sort of iconic role. And it was amazing seeing how a couple of the actors who really just figured out that character and different takes and how their own disabilities informs the script and makes you have to write less because you don't have to explain it. Mm. Yeah. So it's just it was a great very inspiring lesson on how an actor, when an actor brings up himself and authenticity to a role, does wonders for it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. You seem to gravitate towards certain creative collaborators, like mm -hmm. if you're going to work yeah. with Kathleen Marshall again. Mm -hmm. Is that something that just comes naturally, or do you just see someone that knows your voice and is supporting it, or how do you figure yeah. out who, for you, who yeah. you like to work with? You know, they're little marriages, like yeah. collaborators, collaborations, especially composer, lyricist, or composer, book writers, mm. very, they're little marriages, and you you know, I always say you have to be answered the, honey, does this just make me look fat question, and not, not want to kill each other, you know, you have yeah. to like, do I look good in this outfit? You have to be able to say, oh, maybe it's not, you know, you have to be saying, eh, maybe it's not your best song, or you have to like, know how to handle those questions without ripping each other's throats out. You know, I love working with Kathleen. I've done many shows with Chris Ashley. I'm very fortunate. I work with others too, David Bryan, some other collaborators. So I just I just feel like you, you need to like to be in the room with them. Yes. You know? Mm -hmm. And then I feel like I need to work with people who I, I feel in some ways are going to challenge me. They're going to ask questions. They're not just going to say, oh, that's everything is great. You know, I want them to ask me questions. Each person brings different things. Some directors I work with are fantastic dramaturgs, and I sort of rely on them for that. Mm. And some, that isn't their main strength. So I know that I need to still work with them, but okay, let me let me make sure this dramatically is as good as it can be, kind of thing. Give to other friends to, to read or kind of thing like like, like that. I, I love working with many people, different people, because they keep challenging me. But there are definitely some people like you know Chris. I love working with. I always come back to him. So that's yeah. great. Well, yeah. I have a couple more questions. Please. One, this is I'm gonna. It's partially for myself. If you just off the top of your head had advice for young writers or uh -huh. for my sake. New, yeah. newer writers <laughs> <Young>. <laughs> what would yeah. you say because if you're just if you're just starting off because it does seem a little bit daunting whether it's a, a new career or whether it's something that you knew since you were a kid right. 
what would you just say straight away that you're like, this is where I go from? Right. One thing is, I'll speak for theater, is, you know, the old thing, you have to sit down and do it. Inspiration. If you're not writing, you're not you're not a writer. If you're not actual, you have to do it. And then like educate yourself on it as you can, which is not necessarily meaning taking writing courses, but read read as many plays as you can. Go see as many plays as you can. You know, get a job as an usher to see a play over and over. Like really expose yourself. Read literature, you know. Your a liberal arts education is a great thing, you know. You have to have a bigger view of the world than your life kind of thing. And you have to have empathy for people. Mm. Read Right, have a, go see shows, have opinions on them that people don't agree with you. You know, like yeah. you know, because it's easy, especially in this uh, social media world. We, oh, that's terrible. That's great. Well, I've seen many a show that people dismiss. I'm like, that was really good writing, and many shows that people have been celebrating. I'm like, that oh, was really sort of, you know, I don't know. That's <laughs> no, I agree. <laughs> you yeah. know, right? Like, and have those opinions and think about why. Study. I always go back and read. If you look at my office, I have like a shelves of plays and, and novels that I'll always go back and read ones. If I'm doing a specific type of play, I'll go back and read several plays that are similar just to sort of see how other people did it. And mm. I won't copy them, but just to see, you know. And you realize like, oh, we're all mortal. You know, we're all, every writer yeah. deals with the same issue every morning. Blank page. How do I fill this up? My thing, which I always tell kids is educate yourself whatever that means to do you know get just get as good as it as you can i also a firm believer that writing is rewriting mm. write a draft put it down invite friends to come over and read it around your table and then give them pizza and then ask them oh that's i'm that's yeah. what i'm doing a lot yeah, of now. yeah yeah i just did that with a play right here where we were sitting and it was so helpful and they were like good actors and then we chat and then we went out and i bought them drinks and yeah so what do you think about this and then you know and then sometimes they're reluctant to tell you but then Give them a margarita or two, and they'll they'll tell you. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So. And it's shocking how I mean these amazing actors will say yes, sitting yeah. up doing a table read in someone's apartment, making them a better performer and cold reading. Yeah. So like people want to do that. Yeah, it's fun. It's weird when you because you feel bad asking. You always think you're imposing yourself, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I you know, I can't pay, but they yeah. love doing it. Yeah. yeah. No, and it's, it's it's great, and you can hear different. Sometimes also. As an actor, you get to read a part you'll never be cast in. You just sort of want the idea. Yeah, no, I'm a big believer in that. And it's a play. Words have to hit the air. Mm. You know, words have to hit the air. And then I'm a, also a big believer in cutting because oftentimes I overwrite and then I hear oh. good, in the mouth of good actors. I don't need yeah. all those words. They started that sentence and I got exactly my meaning. Mm. Yeah. I know John Waters writes every day except Sundays from 8 a.m. to 12 p.m. no matter what. Yeah. That he doesn't, even if he's not working on anything. Right. Do you have like a little trick of something that you're like, I have to do something that's like your discipline? Uh, well, there's nothing like a deadline. So mm. I'll always give myself deadlines. I write every day. I'm not one of those morning people. Me neither. Yeah, I know. I, like people are like, I get up at 6 a.m. and have a cup of tea and then I write <laughs> for seven hours and then this lunch. So I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> I'm always like, no, that's not me. But I, you know, I, I generally write. I have to do is writers have to be selfish with their time. I've learned mm. because there's a lot of demands on your you know, friends and family and things and things to do. And a lot of people don't, when you tell them you're writing, they don't view it as work, which is weird. Like a lot of times like, Hey, you want to hang out? Oh uh, no, I can't. I'm writing. Yeah. Okay. Well, so write later. Hang out. I'm like, I don't call, you know, my accountant friends up and say, what do you yeah. do? I'm at work. Yeah. Hey, come on, hang out. Like people do that all the time. You know, Hey, can you do lunch? No, I'm working on a project. Well, you have to eat. Well, actually, it's going to interrupt my process. So, yeah. So, yeah. I don't do a lot of lunches. I don't, you know, I try to make my day, make my day morning stuff and later stuff so I have the afternoons. It can hurt friendships and things like that. But mm. you just, like, you have to be selfish with your time if you want to do this. You know, writing is sitting down and it's the effort, you know. Yeah. 
Well, if your amazing career, do you have a moment that is a highlight? And it doesn't even have to be about your career or your Tony, which yeah. maybe I'll look at later. Uh, uh, I mean, there's something that's like was so special to you that you've made all of this worthwhile. Uh, I'm very fortunate. I have many. You know, I mean, one thing which makes it all worthwhile is the friendships I've made over the years in the business, and even some of the shows that didn't work as well as I would have liked them to. Like, I worked with great people, with amazing people who I learned a lot of, and I maintained friendships with many of them over the years. There's always, you know, people would talk about a flop. Like people would say, "Oh, the flop," you know, like it was worthless. I'm like. Not for me, not for the people involved sometimes. It's, yeah. you know, it, it really sort of feeds your soul and that's your life. I think sort of my greatest moment, my most fulfilling moment was the opening night of Memphis on Broadway because after All Shook Up, only ran for a few months and I was sort of in uh, writing Siberia for a couple years. Mm. Four years later, had that show come back and have it, you know, just explode off that stage and clearly... You know, we didn't know if it was going to be hit or not, but clearly impacting audiences the way it was and being at the Schubert Theater and like sort of after like all that work I had to do to get back there, just like that opening night, I wouldn't, wouldn't trade for anything. And I was could have been done by then. I would have been happy. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. I like to end the podcast with like an outgoing song, like a song for the credits. And it can be any song from any part of your life or what's going on with you right now. Do you have, would have a song you would pick? Wow, I wish I could give you a song from Diana, but that we haven't recorded uh, yet. It's going to be good. Let's go with Memphis Lives in Me. Great. How's that after, after that Memphis moment? Yeah, that was, we had written the show and we had played it out of town a couple times really well. Sort of the lead producer of the time said to us, you know, there's no title song in this. And I was like, we like David, Brian and I were like, oh, that's interesting. I think I had the idea, what about the title Memphis Lives in Me for this, like a traditional 11 o'clock number, which we didn't have for the lead character. So we wrote Memphis Lives in Me and uh, it's certainly one of the things I'm most proud of having written. Well, thank you very much. This was fantastic. I love you, Brad. Thanks. There's a town that I call home Where all the streets are paved with soul Down on Beale there's a honky-tonk bar Hear the wail of a blues guitar Have a beer, drop a dime in a blind man's jar A Sunday morning prayer Just one more drink and you'll see God everywhere Like a sad old melody Tears you up but sets you free Comes a point when a man has had enough Like a friend who always 
comes a time when muddy waters run rough There comes a point when a man has had enough Like a friend who always stands by me, yeah 